All right, youth and counselors, just try that again. Who's excited about the youth retreat today? Somewhat broader in reach, but uh, it's, it's getting more. All right, so we have, we have a couple more hours. I do have one question, though, Pastor Kevin. If uh, a youth does not have an extra pair of socks with them, like, are we supposed to help or? Oh, <laughs> so you don't really want us to help with our extra socks that we have or the ones we're wearing. Nothing like that. No. Well, good morning, church. We are going through a series in the last couple months, and we have about a month more ahead of us, called the Psalms of Ascents, which is Psalms 120 to 134. And as of today, we are at Psalm 130, so we are two-thirds of the way through. Now, this morning's psalm is fitting in a particular kind of a category, as well as a, a posture of how the psalms is coming from. So if I can uh, kind of take us ahead a little bit. The psalm of today fits into this category of, of lament because the psalmist is going through what he perceives to be an overwhelming set of circumstances in which the only option and the only real salvific, life-changing, transforming option that he has is to cry out to the Lord. And we see that in the very, very beginning of the psalm. So he is in tremendous distress, one that he is not able to handle. And this psalm then speaks of how he asks the Lord to help him. But as we've been talking about the series of the Psalms of Ascents, which has been historically kind of paired with these journeys that the Jewish people would go on when the temple was there, that they would journey from locally and, and as far as they're able to travel, whether it's to celebrate the three main festivals or just to go and, and to pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They would sing these psalms. They would recite these words. And they were put together so that it would bring the community together as well as form their hearts in anticipation for corporate worship, sacrifice, and reverence before the Lord. This psalm in of itself is unique and special because as the psalmist is crying from a place of despair, you will actually see one couplet at a time, and there are four couplets in this psalm, in which he is more and more ready to approach the living God. He knows where he's at. He remembers who God is and what he has done. He surrenders himself in his heart to the lordship and the leadership of God, and then he calls his fellow companions to come with him to worship, to gather, to pilgrimage, and to journey. So in this one psalm, you will actually experience this personal psalm of ascent, one in which his heart, along with his physical actions and his intentions, are lining up to meet with God. That the late pastor and author Derek Kidner wrote this about Psalm 130. That at the end, there is encouragement for the many from the experience of the one. And so this psalm encapsulates the entire series of aiming to bring and to prepare and to shape the hearts of God's people to come meet with him. Because we know that meeting with God is just more than stepping foot through the doors into a room and just taking a seat for an hour and a half. That to the extent in which you are here to worship God, it really begins with your heart and your posture before him. And then everything we do is in response to that desire for him as well as that humility before him. So I'd like for us, before I go into just a quick prayer to begin our time, to read this psalm together. 
So if you could please stand with me, we're going to just look at all eight verses, and we'll just read it together, and then I'll open up with a word of prayer. So starting from verse 1 of Psalm 130, this is God's word. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Church, please pray with me. Father, we ask, God, that we would find ourselves, as many of us who are followers of Jesus are on this journey, that we would find ourselves then in the hearts and in the concerns and in the burdens of the psalmist as he is approaching you with his family, with his community, with his traveling group to worship, to gather, to receive, but also to honor. We pray, Lord, that it would begin even this morning that as we are here, Father, that we do not let the condition and the state of our hearts be left ignorant. But, Father, your whole spirit is doing a work now, connecting where we are at, even honestly, before you in our walk, in our faith, and our dependence on you at this very minute. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would attune our hearts to your grace. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that a journey towards you is one that continues through every season and every phase and every life stage. Father, it doesn't end until Christ returns or you take us. So we just want to thank you, Father, that we don't journey alone. But we also thank you, Lord, that the work that you have started in each and every one of us, Father, you'll be faithful to finish. So God, we come before you at this hour and we ask, Lord, that you would take us where we are, that you would point us to your son, Jesus, with the fullness of attention and of gaze and affection. And we pray, Lord, that then you would unite us supernaturally on this journey through the service and out these doors to our homes and back to our communities. We pray, Lord, for the young adults that are being ministered to this weekend. We pray, Father, that as they gather to worship and as they eat and as they come back home, that you will bring them home safely because, Lord, as they left from us, we look forward to having them back. We pray for the same for the youth and the counselors this afternoon, God, as they're going for a week, four days of spending time with you and with one another in your word. We pray, Father, that you would also prepare their hearts to have the expectations that are grander than what they see, but that they would be supernaturally equipped and convicted to seek your face above all things. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. So this sermon is going to go through one couplet at a time so that we're able to track where this psalmist is at in the way that I just described. And it does begin with his personal cry of desperation. The first phrase of verse 1 is out of the depths. And we can't 
really appreciate that enough, what it means to be out of the depths as the psalmist is describing it. Certainly there are Old Testament imagery that points to this, of waves overcoming, of people feeling helpless. And this is all of the imageries in which the writer wants to conjure up for the reader to point to the precise location of where his heart is. He is being completely overwhelmed. He is being completely defeated in his heart as he looks at his circumstances. There are no other options for help as far as he can see. And so when you're at the bottom of the well, where sometimes God puts us, the only way and the only thing that we see when we look up then is him. And this is where he finds himself in verse 1. Out of the depths, out of the drowning, out of the struggle, out of the quagmire of a life that he does not begin to know how to make sense of, he calls out to God. You know, this distress could be related to his circumstances, could be related to suffering that he's enduring, could be related to fractured relationships, it could be related to doubts that he has in his heart regarding who he is as a Jewish person, who he is as one of God's covenant people. It could be a variety of things. We don't know. But what we do know is that it is so overwhelming that the only one that he could turn to is God. And so that then is a question we have to consider. What kind of situation is he in? Because we all go through hardships. We all go through trials. And if we're willing to take the next step to consider, what might be the source? What might be the issue? What might be the problem that is causing his despair? That's something that we want to think about. Because a lot of times, how we view our situation relates to the help that we seek. That if we think it's external, that if we think it's our circumstances, then perhaps we will look for solutions that address those factors that are outside of us. But if it is something else, then in wisdom, we need to pursue those answers that are not just from out of us, but that from in us. Verses 3 and 4 actually points us very clearly to the source of his circumstances and despair. But we'll get there. I want to introduce you to somebody that might be very familiar to many of you. This is Johnny Erickson Tata. She is the founder and CEO of Johnny and Friends. I don't know her personally. I'm not talking like I do, but she is fairly familiar to many. Now, her ministry reaches out in a variety of ways, publishes curriculum, teachings, gatherings, retreats, so on and so forth, for special needs among many people that the gospel has been called to be brought to and for people to be discipled. And she's been serving in this capacity for a long time. This is actually the 40th year of her ministry. And so this is kind of a, a big year. And there's ways in which, you know, her ministry is kind of uh, sharing aspects of, of praise and vision towards that. So that's kind of uh, made uh, what she does more prominent. But, but this is also a, a unique year in that she's turning 70 years old. You know, it's, it's funny. If you've known somebody for a while, you kind of don't realize how quickly years go. 70, wow, she's 70. She's been around for a long time. But she's not anywhere near done. You know, she, she's got a full steam here. She's, she's ready to go for this current season of, of her life. 
But see, the, the, the interesting about, thing about her is this, is that probably more than uh, anyone that if I was to consider a, a circumstance that would lend me to agree with the psalmist in that I cry out from the depths of despair, it, it would be maybe a little bit of what's happened to her. So when she was 17, she got into an accident while swimming and uh, diving into a pool of water, and she became a quadriplegic at the age of 17. You know, today we just are sending out a bunch of youth and a bunch of counselors for the youth for a retreat for four days. She was your age, you guys, that are being sent out when she got paralyzed, and that's how she's been since she was 17, and now she's 70, turning this year. Imagine that. Imagine that. The next 53 years of your life in this way. So that even in her own walk, after the permanence of the paralysis set in, she started to feel hopeless. And she began searching the Bible for references of how Jesus healed paralyzed people. You know, one story comes to mind right away in Luke 5. And by the way, she uh, contributed a chapter to this book that was recently published called Lost and Found that detailed a lot of this. So I'm drawing from her story that she wrote herself here. But if you look at this familiar story in Luke chapter 5, she described how her eyes turned to this because of what was described in these verses. And these are the verses that she put her gaze on, okay? So feel free to follow along with your eyes. Let me go ahead and read it for us. She Locked on, verses 17 through 19 and 25 to 26. On one of those days, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed like her. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist before Jesus. Then she goes on to verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, do you fault her for going to those snippets of the story? If I was looking for answers, my eyes would be thrown to those two passages. First of all, who is this? What happened to this person? And then what did Jesus do? I would think and point and look and gaze upon the same two sections of that story. And then I would begin to hope. And then I would begin to pray. And I would begin to cry out. I would begin to ask. I would begin to plead with God that what Jesus has done would happen to me. I would. And that's why her eyes locked on to that. See, for that season when she was first dealing with her paralysis, you know, by her confession, she said that the focal points about her relationship with God became about the healing. So she started attending crusades that were publicized as healing crusades. Which days? How do I line those up? Who are the miracle healers I can go to? How and when can I be healed 
Who can be the ones that lower me down the roof? Who do I need to support me? Who do I need to help me? What prayers can I say? What alms can I give? That's where she was at. This is a quote from her own pen. Forget the sin part. I just wanted the healing part. As far as I was concerned, if I kept my nose clean and stayed out of trouble, Jesus would have no reason not to heal me. Let me say that again. Jesus would have no reason not to heal me. She was doing her best. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Sometimes in the quietness of our hearts when we're going through a trial, when we're going through a struggle, when we have a dilemma for which we don't have the answers to, when we need God because we know that no one else can change what we're going through, can heal our broken heart, can grow our faith. But see, where she was coming from is representative of a growing and probably more familiar and kind of casually, subtly becoming ordinary and normal way of thinking where she was coming from was a place of believing, hanging on, and clinging to this idea of karma. What is karma? Well, it's rooted in Hindu and Buddhist philosophy, but karma pretty much just says this. You deserve what you've done, whether in this life or the previous life. Everything that you've done, everything that you're doing now, you know what's going to come back to you fully. It's this way of believing in fate and destiny that is almost mechanical. There's no room for God in there because there's no need for God in there. But, but it's such a common way of thinking. Even Let's be honest with ourselves. How when we think sometimes whether when people, let's say, sin against us or when we make a mistake or we do something wrong, that somehow our immediate response is, oh, you know, they'll get theirs. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Or even our desire to do good comes primarily in how we could be repaid for that good. I mean, that's actually uh, pretty ingrained into our, you know, uh, Asian honor-shame culture. A lot of the conflicts and points of offense are when there's not the respect and the return given for what has been invested into you. So that idea of karma, of you getting what you deserve, you pay ahead, pay forward, because then good things will come to you. Now, we know that we're called to do good deeds. We know that we're called to bear burdens. We know we're called to be generous, especially to the household of God. But the motivation isn't to like work some kind of lever so that we get back what's ours. That's karma. You see, the motivation for us doing any of this is grace. And that when Christ went to the cross for the sins of you and I, he didn't deserve that punishment. That when we put our faith in Christ, when the great exchange happens where his righteousness belongs to us and our sin is put on the cross with him, him bearing the pain, the burden, the he doesn't deserve that. We don't deserve that. That's grace. 
the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead after three days, satisfying the wrath of a perfect and holy and just God so that we don't get the punish, punishment that we deserve. That's mercy, us being spared. But our motivation to, quote, pay it forward is not because it is an even exchange, that we are working the system, that there's this cosmic accounting that is happening with or without our knowledge or intervention, but our motivation is because we love because he loved us first. That's grace. And as much as he has loved in abundance, as much as he has extended grace overflowing as undeserving as we are and will continue to be, we are sons and daughters in Christ. And those blessings and those gifts will continue to come simply because the Father is generous. And so we're called because we're blessed to be a blessing. Yes, first to the household of God, but then locally and globally by our actions and our words, our time, treasure, and talents. There's a huge worldview shift here. Incidentally, that's also why touching matters like this, why this year's youth retreat is on defending your faith. It's not that we're sending you away so that you can become militant, that you're coming with all these extra tools or weapons to beat down on non-Christians with weaker arguments or weaker Christians with no arguments. That's not the reason why we're sending you to this retreat. It's because we need to understand in the world that we are today what grace means and what grace looks like when applied to prevailing thoughts of our culture that are taken for granted. For which when we hear it, if we're unprepared, we have nothing to say and our faith goes with it as it is built on sand. That is the reason why this year's retreat is happening. It's not to make you guys more proud. It's not to make you guys more articulate. It's not to make you guys more smart. It's not to make you guys the apples of the pastor's eyes. It's because we live in a time in which these things are not clear. And the way in which we let thoughts and ideas and priorities drive our lives are not always rooted and anchored in what Christ has done for us. And honestly, most of the time, it's what we do for us and what others can do for us. And we manipulate the system. We game it to get what we want. That's the world without Christ. We have something better hidden in jars of clay. Weak, broken, shattered sometimes, but it's better. That's the gospel. And that's where the psalmist goes next. Something that is greater than karma. Something that shows love, intentionality, relationship, forgiveness, and grace is the gospel. He directly connects his situation then to this in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord. So respectful and reverential, isn't he? Who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. See, as a group of traveling 
Jewish faithful, it won't be long before verses like Exodus 34 come up in their words and in their conversations where Moses reminds God's people, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is a God of grace. He is a God of steadfast love. He is a God of forgiveness because as the psalmist declares, if he is not, who can stand? Who can stand against the holy, hot fire of an absolute pure and just creator, maker, judge? Who, if he takes away from that perfection, impardoning sin without there being atonement, his character is actually diminished because he is less perfect than someone who actually maintains that perfection and that purity. So the psalmist recognizes both sides of this, doesn't he? He recognizes that, oh God, if you don't forgive, we're all in big trouble. But if you forgive, and you do, and you do all the time, that then our posture before you can be one of forgiveness received and fear or reverence laid before. You know where genuine reverence comes from? It comes from the fact that the person that you're looking up to can really do something to mess with you but they don't. They spare you. You know, older sibling, younger sibling stuff, you know, you guys, you have gone through some of this. But you know, if, if your older sibling spares you from, you know, some prank or, you know, from, from getting you in trouble with your parents or, or, or something that you did, you're like, oh, thank you so much. I owe you one. Well, we're not talking about this tiny little, you know, human metaphor. We're, we're talking about God, right? It's talking about God. Imagine us in our fullness of iniquity, being fully pardoned by his grace because of the work of his son. See, that fear and reverence is not only expected, that fear and reverence, if we actually appreciate the gravity of the pardon, will spring forth. It's actually natural. You can't not be grateful. You can't not be reverential. You can't not be fearful of a God that holds your life and destiny in his hands. And he says, I will punish my son. Welcome into my home. Wow. Wow. Fear and reverence is the least of the words that can describe why the gospel never gets old. The gospel should never get old. It might start sounding familiar, and we might need to contextualize or articulate it or reword it or apply it to our lives, but it never gets old because if God has done that, then our lives are forever changed as well as forever in debt, but not out of guilt or obligation, but out of fear and reverence. So there's forgiveness for all sins, not just a few. There's forgiveness right now, not only way down the line, and there 
forgiveness offered to those who are seeking it. And sometimes we need to be in the depth where the psalmist is at to truly seek it. John Erickson Tata eventually returned her studies of Luke 5 back into the central verses, and it said this. And when he saw their faith, Jesus, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? You see the controversy behind somebody that says they can forgive your sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. See, she learned something there through her experience as it connects to the word of God. That Christ came to save, first and foremost. That Christ did many things, but he came first to save, to be a ransom for many, to give his life so that people made in the image of God can have and experience the forgiveness of sins. So while she was going through physical, I mean, I, I just can't imagine that, that kind of duress and, and desperation. I, while she was going through all of that, she also realized that the healing of that is not the ultimate focus. It can't be. Jesus is greater in his ministry and in his life and in his purpose and why God sent him in the plan that was ordained before the foundation of the world, not just to relieve a few decades of your life, but to give to you who will believe and repent and trust an eternity of a greater life with God. The primary goal wasn't just to make you comfortable in the decades that you have, but it is to make you acceptable forever before God. And that then the primary enemy is not our circumstances alone, although many of them are trying, not denying the hardships that many of us have or have seen or have heard but that the primary goal is still to save us for his glory, for his good pleasure, and to work within us to shape, to form, to mature into the likeness of his son, Jesus. So I'd like for you guys to turn to your bulletins real quick in your notes. Uh, if you've been using it, great, you're there. If you haven't, uh, now you will. I'm going to give you guys 30 seconds. If you could please respond to the question. Number one, how have you experienced God's forgiveness and deliverance in your life? See, we don't remember sometimes. 
And so we find ourselves in a quagmire over and over again looking sideways. But let's take 30 seconds, write down one thing, one example. How have you experienced God's forgiveness and deliverance in your life? He goes on in verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And this is such a wonderful sermon to prepare for because I last preached in Psalm 127 where it spoke about the watchmen stay awake in vain if the Lord does not protect and watch and defend the city. See, the watchmen work hard. But the purpose of them doing that is to wait for the sun, is to wait for the dawn, is to wait for what is coming at the end of the day. So this is the psalmist's personal declaration of dependence. He recognizes where he's at. He understands, but he also believes with all of his heart that God is everything, and he is enough, and he is more than enough. So then his response is one that speaks deeper than just actions. He speaks and points to this heart of affection and loyalty and desire to give honor and tribute with his life. By the way, this is also our prayers for you, youth and counselors that are going up to this retreat this weekend. It's, it's a retreat, not just because you go somewhere else. You could have a retreat even in the same place, which the Cantonese congregation is doing next week. They're meeting here for their retreat. But a retreat is simply this. It's a time to apply verse 5. It's a time to prepare for verse 5, where you're setting aside your schedule, your priorities, your preferences, and you just come to wait upon the Lord. Not just in your you know, begrudged actions and your bodies, but with your heart that you come to wait upon the Lord, which means things happen in his time, which means things are done his way, which means you're with people that you may not be familiar with or necessarily like. But where's your hope? His word. That's your hope. And when you set aside time to do this, with one another, that's the treasure that will be mined. Because sometimes we're so busy, sometimes we don't take the time to remember, to reflect, or to respond to what we already know is true in verses 3 and 4 about who God is. I love this quote from Johnny. Now, this is actually towards some of us who've been Christians longer, so this is the flip side of the youth, okay? So listen up here. So for the last 50 years in my wheelchair, 50 years, I've been daily dying to self and rising with Jesus, dying to self and rising with Jesus, dying to self and rising with Jesus. Repetition hers, not mine, three times. My goal is to mortify my fleshy desires so that I might find myself in Christ. 
God has been answering my prayer, exposing dark things in my heart, things from which I need to be healed. 50 years. But isn't that where we all want to be? And do we need a tragedy to happen in our lives before we could pursue that? Application question number two. Please turn there. How would you describe your relationship with God? Write down three adjectives. Three adjectives of how you would describe your relationship with God. Don't like it, your neighbors. This is personal, you know, their time with God, you know, but be honest. Write down three adjectives. Your soul, does it yearn for God? Does your hope rest in God? Just be honest. It starts there. God already knows your heart. He's not playing games with you, but maybe sometimes we box things up in ways or we cover things up or make it pretty in ways so that we think what people think about our relationship with God. Starts with you. Write three adjectives, okay? This isn't a homework assignment. Take all the time you want to do it after this as well, okay? But I do want to give it the time so that we actually do it. Okay, but let's go on. Verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. He is now talking beyond himself, isn't he? He's looking around, people that, you know, he's journeying with. And he's like, hey guys, hope in the Lord with me. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. It's not just for me. It's for us. And he will redeem Israel from his iniquities. You know what is a beautiful thing about today? And only God can do this, and he does a million things that we don't recognize half the time. But do you know what is a tangible application of verses 7 and 8? Let's hope in the Lord. He offers redemption. He offers grace and forgiveness, the Lord's Supper. This is why we do this regularly, because the bread and the cup pointing to the new covenant reminds us that Redemption has been secured in Christ that in this mass of people that are partaking in it, we're doing more than just these repetitive actions that we could do without thinking. But as we wait upon the Lord and as our soul yearns for God and as we point our gaze upon Jesus, when we take the Lord's Supper, it is us looking at one another saying, come on. Hope in the Lord together, God's people. There's redemption plenty in Christ if we will turn to him. This is why we need to keep doing this. And some churches actually do this every week. Might be too much for some. But we have to do this regularly because otherwise we're just running church. Songs, preaching, prayers, announcements, boom, lunch. And I'm ahead of you there, right? You didn't think i get there, but no, no. I know you're thinking. It's okay. But the Lord's Supper is for that. It declares what the psalmist declares in verses 7 and 8, that we look towards each other. Christ has accomplished everything that we need. So in the beginning, remember, the psalmist says, I'm in the depths, out of the depths, I'm crying, I'm drowning. I want you guys to hear these words from a song called Living Waters that we're familiar with. What if instead we turn to the Lord? Are you thirsty? 
Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Tired and broken, peace unspoken, rest beside these living waters. Christ is calling, find refreshing at the cross of living waters. That's what we just remembered. Lay your life down, all the old gone. Rise up in these living waters. Spirit moving, mercy washing, healing in these living waters. Lead your children to the shoreline. Life is in these living waters. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Love, forgiveness, vast and boundless. Christ, he is our living waters. And the chorus declares this. There is a river that flows with mercy and love, bringing joy to the city of our God. There our hope is secure. Do not fear anymore. Praise the Lord of living waters. Our big idea for this morning could be summarized in this short statement. God responds to our cries for help with forgiveness of sin so that we may walk together in reverence and remembrance. And I want you to turn towards application question number three before I close with prayer and address this. Which areas in your relationship with God would you like to experience more? And you can circle all those that apply. The forgiveness that is mentioned in verses 3 and 4. The fear and the reverence towards him that is mentioned there as well as a result of trusting in that forgiveness. Or the fellowship and an intimacy and that desire to know God. That relationship with God that maybe you've been missing for a while. Or maybe you're not experiencing at all. Maybe you don't even know what that is, but you've just kind of been coming to church for a while. Which one of those, or more than one of those, are things that you are seeking from God, knowing with full confidence that Christ has accomplished it all to save, to preserve, and to rescue his people? Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much, God, for this particular psalm of ascent, that even in the life of one writer, we're able to see how he is moving upwards in his heart, in his affection towards you, then bringing the community with him as he follows. Father, we thank you, Lord, that there is abundant forgiveness and that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. But we also thank you Lord, that that news never gets old, never wears out, and is never obsolete, no matter how long we've been following Jesus, because he is the living water that enables us to never thirst again. So, Father, take us where we are, connect us with one another in this church family, and help us, Lord, to follow you with fullness of joy, in reverence, and in remembrance. And we pray that you would do a mighty work in us in the power of your Holy Spirit. In your name I pray.